This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Silver Key by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Martin Reto for Lagamus. It runs 34 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This Lagamus recording may be distributed and adapted freely for any purpose. The Silver Key by Howard Phillips Lovecraft Read by Martin Reto He had read much of things as they are, and talked with too many people. Well-meaning philosophers had taught him to look into the logical relations of things and analyze the processes which shaped his thoughts and fancies. Wonder had gone away, and he had forgotten that all life is only a set of pictures in the brain, among which there is no difference betwixt those born of real things and those born of inward dreamings and no cause to value the one above the other. Custom had dinned into his ears a superstitious reverence for that which tangibly and physically exists, and had made him secretly ashamed to dwell in visions. Wise men told him his simple fancies were inane and childish, and even more absurd because their actors persist in fancying them full of meaning and purpose as the blind cosmos grinds aimlessly on from nothing to something, and from something back to nothing again. Neither heeding nor knowing the wishes or existence of the minds that flicker for a second now and then in the darkness. They had chained him down to things that are, and had then explained the workings of those things till mystery had gone out of the world. When he complained and longed to escape into twilight realms, where magic molded all the little vivid fragments and prized associations of his mind into vistas of breathless expectancy and unquenchable delight, they turned him instead toward the new-found prodigies of science, bidding him find wonder in the atom's vortex and mystery in the sky's dimensions. And when he had failed to find these boons and things whose laws are known and measurable, they told him he lacked imagination and was immature because he preferred dream illusions to the illusions of our physical creation. So Carter had tried to do as others did and pretended that the common events and emotions of earthly minds were more important than the fantasies of rare and delicate souls. He did not dissent when they told him that the animal pain of a stuck pig or dyspeptic plowman in real life is a greater thing than the peerless beauty of Narath with its hundred carven gates and domes of Chalcedony, which he dimly remembered from his dreams. And under their guidance he cultivated a painstaking sense of pity and tragedy. Once in a while, though, he could not help seeing how shallow fickle and meaningless all human aspirations are, and how emptily our real impulses contrast with those pompous ideals we profess to hold. 
then he would have recourse to the polite laughter they had taught him to use against the extravagance and artificiality of dreams, for he saw that the daily life of our world is every inch as extravagant and artificial, and far less worthy of respect because of its poverty and beauty and its silly reluctance to admit its own lack of reason and purpose. In this way he became a kind of humorist, for he did not see that even humor is empty in a mindless universe devoid of any true standard of consistency or inconsistency. In the first days of his bondage he had turned to the gentle churchly faith endeared to him by the naive trust of his fathers, for thence stretched mystic avenues which seemed to promise escape from life. Only on closer view did he mark the starved fancy and beauty, the stale and prosy triteness and the owlish gravity and grotesque claims of solid truth which reigned boresomely and overwhelmingly among most of its professors, or feel to the full the awkwardness with which it sought to keep alive as literal fact the outgrown fears and guesses of a primal race confronting the unknown. It wearied Carter to see how solemnly people tried to make earthly reality out of old myth which every step of their boasted science confuted, and this misplete seriousness killed the attachment he might have kept for the ancient creeds, had they been content to offer the sonorous rites and emotional outlets in their true guise of ethereal fantasy. But when he came to study those who had thrown off the old myths, he found them even more ugly than those who had not. They did not know that beauty lies in harmony and that loveliness of life has no standard amidst an aimless cosmos, save only its harmony with the dreams and the feelings which have gone before and blindly molded our little spheres out of the rest of chaos. They did not see that good and evil and beauty and ugliness are only ornamental fruits of perspective, whose sole value lies in their linkage to what chance made our fathers think and feel, and whose finer details are different for every race and culture. Instead, they either denied these things altogether or transferred them to the crude, vague instincts which they shared with the beasts and peasants, so that their lives were dragged malodorously out in pain, ugliness, and disproportion, yet filled with a ludicrous pride at having escaped from something no more unsound than that which still held them. They had traded the false gods of fear and blind piety for those of license and anarchy. Carter did not taste deeply of these modern freedoms, for their cheapness and squalor sickened a spirit-loving beauty alone, while his reason rebelled at the flimsy logic with which their champions tried to gild brute impulse with a sacredness stripped from the idols they had discarded. He saw that most of them, in common with their cast-off priestcraft, could not escape from the delusion that life has a meaning apart from that which men dream into it, and could not lay aside the crude notion of ethics and obligations beyond those of beauty even when all nature shrieked of its unconsciousness and impersonal unmorality in the light of their scientific discoveries, warped and bigoted with preconceived illusions of justice, freedom, and consistency, they cast off the old lore and the old way with the old beliefs, 
nor ever stopped to think that that lore and those ways were the sole makers of their present thoughts and judgments, and the sole guides and standards in a meaningless universe without fixed aims or stable points of reference. Having lost these artificial settings, their lives grew void of direction and dramatic interest, till at length they strove to drown their ennui and bustle and pretended usefulness, noise and excitement, barbaric display and animal sensation. When these things palled, disappointed, or grew nauseous through revulsion, they cultivated irony and bitterness and found fault with the social order. Never could they realize that their brute foundations were as shifting and contradictory as the gods of their elders, and that the satisfaction of one moment is the bane of the next. Calm, lasting beauty comes only in a dream, and this solace the world had thrown away, when in its worship of the real, it threw away the secrets of childhood and innocence. Amidst this chaos of hollowness and unrest, Carter tried to live as befitted a man of keen thought and good heritage. With his dreams fading under the ridicule of the age, he could not believe in anything, but the love of harmony kept him close to the ways of his race and station. He walked impassive through the cities of men and sighed because no vista seemed fully real, because every flash of yellow sunlight on tall roofs and every glimpse of balustraded plazas and the first lamps of evening served only to remind him of dreams he had once known, and to make him homesick for ethereal lands he no longer knew how to find. Travel was only a mockery, and even the great war stirred him but little, though he served from the first in the foreign legion of France. For a while he sought friends, but soon grew weary of the crudeness of their emotions and the sameness and earthiness of their visions. He felt vaguely glad that all his relatives were distant and out of touch with him, for they would not have understood his mental life, that is, none but his grandfather and great-uncle Christopher could, and they were long dead. Then he began once more the writing of books, which he'd left off when dreams first failed him. But here, too, was there no satisfaction or fulfillment, for the touch of earth was upon his mind, and he could not think of lovely things as he had done of yore. Ironic humor dragged down all the twilight minarets he reared, and the earthy fear of improbability blasted all the delicate and amazing flowers in his fairy gardens. The convention of assumed pity spilt mawkishness on his characters, while the myth of an important reality and significant human events and emotions debased all his high fantasy into thin, veiled allegory and cheap social satire. His new novels were successful as his old ones had never been, and because he knew how empty they must be to please an empty herd, he burnt them and ceased his writing. They were very graceful novels in which he urbanely laughed at the dreams he lightly sketched, but he saw that their sophistication had sapped all their life away. It was after this that he cultivated deliberate illusion, and dabbled in the notions of the bizarre and the eccentric as an antidote for the commonplace, 
Most of those, however, soon showed their poverty and barrenness, and he saw that the popular doctrines of occultism are as dry and inflexible as those of science, yet without even the slender palliative of truth to redeem them. Gross stupidity, falsehood, and muddled thinking are not dream, and form no escape from life to a mind trained above their own level. So Carter bought stranger books, and sought out deeper and more terrible men of fantastic erudition, delving into arcana of consciousness that few have trod, and learning things about the secret pits of life, legend, and immemorial antiquity which disturbed him ever afterward. He decided to live on a rarer plane, and furnished his Boston home to suit his changing moods. One room for each, hung in appropriate colors, furnished with befitting books and objects, and provided with sources of the proper sensations of light, heat, sound, taste, and odor. Once he heard of a man in the South, who was shunned and feared for the blasphemous things he read in prehistoric books and clay tablets smuggled from India and Arabia. Him he visited, living with him and sharing his studies for seven years, till horror overtook them one midnight in an unknown and archaic graveyard, and only one emerged where two had entered. Then he went back to Arkham, the terrible witch-haunted old town of his forefathers in New England, and had experiences in the dark, amidst the hoary willows and tottering gambrel roofs, which made him seal forever certain pages in the diary of a well-minded ancestor. But these horrors took him only to the edge of reality, and were not of the true dream country he had known in youth, so that at fifty he despaired of any rest or contentment in a world grown too busy for beauty and too shrewd for dreams. Having perceived at last the hollowness and futility of real things, Carter spent his days in retirement and in wistful, disjointed memories of his dream-filled youth. He thought it rather silly that he bothered to keep on living at all, and got from a South American acquaintance a very curious liquid to take him to oblivion without suffering. Inertia and force of habit, however, caused him to defer action, and he lingered indecisively among thoughts of old times, taking down the strange hangings from his walls and refitting the house as it was in his early boyhood purple panes, Victorian furniture, and all. With the passage of time he became almost glad he had lingered, for his relics of youth and his cleavage from the world made life and sophistication seem very distant and unreal, so much so that a touch of magic and expectancy stole back into his nightly slumbers. For years those slumbers had known only such twisted reflections of everyday things as the commonest slumbers know, but now there returned a flicker of something stranger and wilder, something of vaguely awesome imminence which took the form of tensely clear pictures from his childhood days and made him think of little inconsequential things he had long forgotten. He would often awake calling for his mother and grandfather, both in their graves a quarter of a century. Then one night his grandfather reminded him of the key. 
the gray old scholar, as vivid as in life, spoke long and earnestly of their ancient line, and of the strange visions of the delicate and sensitive men who composed it. He spoke of the flame-eyed crusader who learned wild secrets of the Saracens that held him captive, and of the first Sir Randolph Carter who studied magic when Elizabeth was queen. He spoke, too, of that Edmund Carter who had just escaped hanging in the Salem witchcraft, and who had placed in an antique box a great silver key handed down from his ancestors. Before Carter awake, the gentle visitant had told him where to find that box, that carved oak box of archaic wonder, whose grotesque lid no hand had raised for two centuries. In the dust and shadows of the great attic he found it, remote and forgotten at the back of a drawer in a tall chest. It was about a foot square, and its Gothic carvings were so fearful that he did not marvel no person since Edmund Carter had dared to open it. It gave forth no noise when shaken, but was mystic with the scent of unremembered spices. That it held the key was indeed only a dim legend, and Randolph Carter's father had never known such a box existed. It was bound in rusty iron, and no means was provided for working the formidable lock. Carter vaguely understood that he would find within it some key to the lost gate of dreams, but of where and how to use it his grandfather had told him nothing. An old servant forced the carven lid, shaking as he did so at the hideous faces leering from the blackened wood, and at some unplaced familiarity. Inside, wrapped in a discolored parchment, was a huge key of tarnished silver covered with cryptical arabesques, but of any legible explanation there was none. The parchment was voluminous and held only the strange hieroglyphs of an unknown tongue written with an antique reed. Carter recognized the characters as those he had seen on a certain papyrus scroll belonging to that terrible scholar of the South who'd vanished one midnight in a nameless cemetery. The man had always shivered when he read this scroll, and Carter shivered now. But he cleaned the key and kept it by him nightly in its aromatic box of ancient oak. His dreams were meanwhile increasing in vividness, and though showing him none of the strange cities and incredible gardens of the old days, were assuming a definite cast whose purpose could not be mistaken. They were calling him back along the years, and with the mingled wills of all his fathers were pulling him towards some hidden and ancestral source. Then he knew he must go into the past and merge himself with old things, and day after day he thought of the hills to the north where haunted Arkham and the rushing Miskatonic and the lonely rustic homestead of his people lay. In the brooding fire of autumn, Carter took the old remembered way past graceful lines of rolling hill and stone-walled meadow, distant vale and hanging woodland, curving road and nestling farmstead, 
and the crystal windings of the Miskatonic crossed here and there by rustic bridges of wood or stone. At one bend he saw the group of giant elms among which an ancestor had oddly vanished a century and a half before, and shuddered as the wind blew meaningly through them. Then there was the crumbling farmhouse of old Goody Fowler, the witch, with its little evil windows and great roof sloping nearly to the ground on the north side. He speeded up his car as he passed it and did not slacken till he had mounted the hill where his mother and her fathers before her were born, and where the old white house still looked proudly across the road at the breathlessly lovely panorama of rocky slope and verdant valley with the distant spires of Kingsport on the horizon and distant hints of the archaic dream-laden sea in the farthest background. Then came the steeper slope that held the old Carter place he'd not seen in over forty years. Afternoon was far gone when he reached the foot, and at the bend halfway up he paused to scan the outspread countryside golden and glorified in the slanting floods of magic poured out by a western sun. All the strangeness and expectancy of his recent dream seemed present in this hushed and unearthly landscape, and he thought of the unknown solitudes of other planets as his eyes traced out the velvet and deserted lawns, shining undulant between their tumbled walls, and clumps of fairy forests setting off far lines of purple hills beyond hills, and the spectral wooded valley dipping down in shadow to dank hollows where trickling waters crooned and gurgled among swollen and distorted roots. Something made him feel that motors did not belong in the realm he was seeking, so he left his car at the edge of the forest, and putting the great key in his coat pocket walked on up the hill. Woods now engulfed him utterly, though he knew the house was on a high knoll that cleared the trees except to the north. He wondered how it would look, for it had been left vacant and untended through his neglect since the death of his strange great-uncle Christopher thirty years before. In his boyhood he had reveled through long visits there, and found weird marvels in the woods beyond the orchard. Shadows thickened around him, for the night was near. Once a gap in the trees opened up to the right, so that he saw off across leagues of twilight meadow and spied the old congregational steeple on Central Hill in Kingsport, pink with the last flush of day, the panes of the little round windows blazing with reflected fire. Then, when he was in deep shadow again, he recalled with a start that the glimpse must have come from childish memory alone, since the old white church had long been torn down to make room for the Congregational Hospital. He had read of it with interest, for the paper had told about some strange burrows or passages found in the rocky hill beneath. Through his puzzlement a voice piped, and he started again at his familiarity after long years. Old Benijah Corey had been his uncle Christopher's hired man, and was aged even in those far-off times of his boyhood visits. Now he must be well over a hundred, but that piping voice could come from no one else. 
He could distinguish no words, yet the tone was haunting and unmistakable. To think that old Benaiji should still be alive. Mr. Randy, Mr. Randy, where be ye? Do you want to scare your Aunt Martha plumb to death? Ain't she told you to keep nigh the place in the art and noon and get back of her dark? Randy, Randy? He's a beatinest boy for running off in the woods I ever see. Half the time a settin' moonin' round that snaked and in the upper timber lot. Hey, you, Randy! Randolph Carter stopped in the pitch darkness and rubbed his hand across his eyes. Something was queer. He'd been somewhere he ought not to be. Had strayed very far away to places where he'd not belonged and was now inexcusably late. He had not noticed the time on the Kingsport steeple, though he could easily have made it out with his pocket telescope. But he knew his lateness was something very strange and unprecedented. He wasn't sure he had his little telescope with him, and put his hand in his blouse pocket to see. No, it was not there, but there was the big silver key he had found in a box, somewhere. Uncle Chris had told him something odd once about an old unopened box with a key in it, but Aunt Martha had stopped the story abruptly, saying it was no kind of thing to tell a child whose head was already too full of queer fancies. He tried to recall just where he'd found the key, but something seemed very confused. He guessed it was in the attic at home in Boston, and dimly remembered bribing Parks with half his week's allowance to help him open the box and keep quiet about it. But when he remembered this, the face of Parks came up very strangely, as if the wrinkles of long years had fallen upon the brisk little cockney. "'Randy! Randy! Hey! Hey! Randy!' A swaying lantern came around the black bend, and old Benaija pounced on the silent and bewildered form of the pilgrim. "'Darn ye, boy, so there ye be! Ain't ye got a tongue in your head that ye can't answer a body? I've been calling this half-hour, and ye must a heard me long ago. Don't ye know your Aunt Marthy's all a fidget over your being off after dark? Wait till I tell your Uncle Chris when he gets home. He ought to know these here woods ain't no fitting place to be traipsing this hour. These things abroad what don't know nobody no good, as my grandsir know to fire me. Come, Mr. Randy, or Hannah won't keep supper no longer. So Randolph Carter was marched up the road, where wandering stars glimmered through high autumn boughs, and dogs barked as the yellow light of small-paned windows shone out at the farther turn, and the Pleiades twinkled across the open knoll where a great gambrel roof stood black against the dim west. Aunt Martha was in the doorway and did not scold too hard when Benaija shoved the truant in. She knew Uncle Chris well enough to expect such things of the Carter blood. Randolph did not show his key, but ate his supper in silence and protested only when bedtime came. He sometimes dreamed better when awake and he wanted to use that key. In the morning, Randolph was up early and would have run off to the upper timber lot if Uncle Chris had not caught him and forced him into his chair by the breakfast table. He looked impatiently around the low-pitched room with the rack carpet and exposed beams and corner posts. 
and smiled only when the orchard boughs scratched at the leaded panes of the rear window. The trees and the hills were close to him and formed the gates of that timeless realm which was his true country. Then, when he was free, he felt in his blouse for the key, and being reassured, skipped off across the orchard to the rise beyond, where the wooded hill climbed again to heights above even the treeless knoll. The floor of the forest was mossy and mysterious, and great lichened rocks rose vaguely here and there in the dim light, like druid monoliths among the swollen and twisted trunks of a sacred grove. Once in his ascent Randolph crossed a rushing stream, whose falls a little way off sang runic incantations of the lurking fauns and ajapans and dryads. Then he came to the strange cave in the forest slope, the dreaded snake-den which country folk shunned, and away from which Benijah had warned him again and again. It was deep, far deeper than any one but Randolph suspected, for the boy had found a fissure in the farthermost black corner that led to a loftier grotto beyond, a haunting sepulchral place whose granite walls held the curious illusion of conscious artifice. On this occasion he crawled in as usual, lighting his way with matches filched from the sitting-room match-safe, and edging through the final crevice with an eagerness hard to explain even to himself. He could not tell why he approached the farther wall so confidently, or why he instinctively drew forth the great silver key as he did so. But on he went, and when he danced back to the house that night, he offered no excuses for his lateness, nor heeded in the least the reproofs he gained for ignoring the noontide dinner horn altogether. Now it is agreed by all the distant relatives of Randolph Carter that something occurred to heighten his imagination in his tenth year. His cousin, Ernest B. Aspinwall, Esquire of Chicago, is fully ten years his senior, and distinctly recalls a change in the boy after the autumn of 1883. Randolph had looked on scenes of fantasy that few others can ever have beheld, and stranger still were some of the qualities which he showed in relation to very mundane things. He seemed, in fine, to have picked up an odd gift of prophecy, and reacted unusually to things which, though at the time without meaning, were later found to justify the singular impressions. In subsequent decades, as new inventions, new names, and new events appeared one by one in the book of history, people would now and then recall wonderingly how Carter had years before let fall some careless word of undoubted connection with what was then far in the future. He did not himself understand these words or know why certain things made him feel certain emotions, but fancied that some unremembered dream must be responsible. It was as early as 1897 that he turned pale when some traveler mentioned the French town of Belois en Santerre, and friends remembered it when he was almost mortally wounded there in 1916 while serving with the Foreign Legion in the Great War. Carter's relatives talk much of these things because he has lately disappeared. 
his little old servant Parks, who for years bore patiently with his vagaries, last saw him on the morning he drove off alone in his car with a key he had recently found. Parks had helped him get the key from the old box containing it, and had felt strangely affected by the grotesque carvings on the box, and by some other odd quality he could not name. When Carter left, he said he was going to visit his old ancestral country around Arkham. Halfway up Elm Mountain, on the way to the ruins of the old Carter place, they found his motor set carefully by the roadside, and in it was a box of fragrant wood with carvings that frightened the countrymen who stumbled on it. The box held only a queer parchment whose characters no linguist or paleographer has been able to decipher or identify. Rain had long effaced any possible footprints, though Boston investigators had something to say about evidences of disturbances among the fallen timbers of the Carter place. It was, they averred, as though someone had groped about the ruins at no distant period, a common white handkerchief found among forest rocks on the hillside beyond cannot be identified as belonging to the missing man. There is talk of apportioning Randolph Carter's estate among his heirs, but I shall stand firmly against this course because I do not believe he is dead. There are twists of time and space, of vision and reality, which only a dreamer can divine, and from what I know of Carter I think he has merely found a way to traverse these mazes. Whether or not he will ever come back I cannot say. He wanted the lands of dream he had lost, and yearned for the days of his childhood. Then he found a key, and I somehow believe he was able to use it to strange advantage. I shall ask him when I see him, for I expect to meet him shortly in a certain dream city we both used to haunt. It is rumored in Ulthar beyond the river's sky that a new king reigns on the opal throne of Elakbad, that fabulous town of turrets atop the hollow cliffs of glass overlooking the twilight sea, wherein the bearded and finny Nori build their singular labyrinths and I believe I know how to interpret this rumor. Certainly I look forward impatiently to the sight of that great silver key, for in its cryptical arabesques there may stand symbolized all the aims and mysteries of a blindly impersonal cosmos. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Jim. And we're going to talk about The Silver Key by H.P. Lovecraft, first published in, I'm pretty sure it's first published in uh, the January 1929 issue of Weird Tales. There's a mm -hmm. beautiful illustration. Uh, it, it doesn't, you know, feature prominently in the story, but uh, the quote goes, There the bearded and furry nori build their labyrinths. <laughs> and I'm like, I kept looking in the story. I'm like, when is, when is this Nori turn up? <laughs> I guess he's there, but he, he's not, uh, he's not the main feature of the story. And then cameo appearance right at the end. Yeah. Right at the end. Um, and then, uh, uh, last night I was going to bed, um, 
with the silver key on the mind and uh, woke up at like 30 in the morning. <laughs> that and can't I, be good. I had the theory, I had a whole theory worked out and I'm going to tell it to you guys uh, in the net, you know, today, right now. And it's basically gone. But I have a theory myself about this. Maybe it's the same theory as yours. Maybe not. Well, mine was to do Maybe. With symmetry. <laughs> okay. Mine was not symmetry. Mine was, mine was a, a little... there's this there's this sort of flying vehicle of some kind, and there was these wings coming out, and each of the wings represented uh some aspect of of human existence, and then um that was comparable to another story, uh, and you could see it as an inverse, and I'm like, wow, this thing's gonna be amazing, and then I went back to sleep and probably forgot it all. So it's it's left on the dreaming room floor, uh, but I did. Well, I, I you got might pick it up conscious. again one day. Yeah, no, definitely. The the it it wasn't what I expected. This story it, when I you know said we should do it, it, I had not read it. I I knew about it. I'd read about it, but I had not read it. And this is not what I expected. Uh, but I have some theories that are made in the conscious world. Um, anybody got any dream theories before we go into the conscious theories? Well, the thing is, it's um, on the Wikipedia, it does put the stories into a chronology mm-hmm. um, based on events in uh, the various Randall Carter tales. But I think that's very much up for debate, though, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because uh, <clears throat> you have the statement of Randall Carter, which is the first Carter story, which is 1919. Mm-hmm. Then Carter is a character who a story is related to in The Unnameable in 1923. Mm-hmm. You get The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth, which is the big novella, the you know the definitive Randall Carter tale, and that's written in 1926 to 27, written over the Christmas period, if I remember rightly, or over the winter. But The Silver Key is written in 1926 as well. Mm-hmm. And it would appear that The Silver Key arguably comes after The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth, but I think when you consider the nature of the story of the Silver Key, <laughs> um, and it has this very cyclical sort of element to it, kind of like almost like a classic time loop. It's a time travel I, I, story. I, I, yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that. That is that is my theory. It's a time travel mm-hmm. story that where we basically changes his life for the better. Mm-hmm. Sort of, but it had always been changed as well, right? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. I'm, 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 I, 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 I think I think there's a cycle here where it wasn't changed, and then he changed it to to basically reify his his dream his dream ability. So okay, so here's my theory. So we we because it, this goes all the way up to the point where he he hears uh, Parks for the, the face of Parks. I mean, he goes through this. He's having a crappy life. He's living living. He goes back. He goes back and goes into goes into the. Uh, into the dark, and then he hears the the voice, and that brings that brings his mind back to the past. And with all that knowledge he has, he's basically now can live a better life. I mean, he's not conscious half the times of the things he remembers from his original time loop, but that sort of reunification with the key and that having already lived that previous life, kind of like a couple, kind of like a couple of star trek episodes that basically gives him the, the power to be the dreamer that we see in all the stories that jim just mentioned mm-hmm. so the, the silver key makes the, the experience of living through a, a crappy crappy boring life and then getting the silver key to come back to 
reify, improve his life makes all the other stories possible. That's my theory. Yeah, it's yeah. not uh, it's not incompatible. I think go for it, Mister Jim. Yeah, no, I'd definitely go with that because I kind of feel um, in the Silver Key he loses the power to enter the Dreamlands, but then Dream Quest starts with him losing the ability to visit this particular city. Mm-hmm. And I'd say Dream Quest takes place kind of after rather than before Silver Key, but it's kind of it's Carter on the second loop mm. of this time round. He doesn't fully lose the ability to to dream he just loses access to one particular sunset city which the gods of the dreamlands covet for themselves which suggests that in silver key he lost the power to dream completely because of them anyway or rather they're mm-hmm. probably their aid their, their guardians and agents who are of course the outer gods and their mighty messenger narathotep who um he has a big set to a big race with at the end of a uh, dream quest but it also paves the way with different memories and having lived a life again for what happens in the sequel that he, um, E. Hoffman Price suggested mm. through the gates of the Silver Key where Carter finds he can actually step out of his own little time track life and become aware of other lives he's lived and not just kind of in a reincarnation way, but lives he's living concurrently throughout different places in time and space. So uh, it's kind of interesting that Weird Tales would even publish a a sequel to this story, considering uh, what the line was is uh, violently disliked by readers. I I <laughs> went and looked in the subsequent issues of Weird Tales to see what the readers said. Nobody mentioned it. In fact, it, the only mention of it is its absence because. Um, they, you know, we got a, which story was the most popular in that issue and the second most popular. And you know, the first one was way more popular than the second. And then like no mention of, of silver key, but then a few years go by and we get the, the sequel, um, through the gates of the silver key. Um, I was willing to think that this was a bad story at maybe the first pass through. But, um, I was trying to understand, like, what it's doing. I, I listened to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast and their take on it. They had Kenneth Hyde as a guest on that one. Who's, uh, oh, 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 yeah. He's yeah, a he, Lovecraft he, guy. He's mm-hmm. Lovecraft guy, does mm-hmm. RPGs with Lovecraft. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Kenneth, Kenneth's great. And, um, they all seem to agree that it was not a great story. Um, and I understand kind of, you know, uh, so Marissa, I think you probably would notice that this is, uh, a lot like a lot other Lovecraft stories, right? It's got a lot of similar elements. Um, it's almost the same plot in a way as, uh, the tomb, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. You feeling all the, all the other Lovecraft stuff in it, you know, sort yeah. of familiar territory. Um, yeah. And a lot of really like, outright references to other stories as oh well. sure yeah i mean mm. he, he we we get the uh, description of how he ended up in in the great cypress swamp in in uh, uh yeah that one <laughs> statement of randolph carter right um mm-hmm. but i have a question uh who is the narrator of this story <laughs> because uh abruptly <coughs> near the end it says, now it is all agreed, uh, it is agreed by all the distant <laughs> relatives of Randolph Carter that something occurred 
uh, to heighten his imagination imagination in this tenth year. And then it continues on, and we realize, oh, this is this is the guy who's been narrating it is not Lovecraft, just sort of giving a third person. It's like a friend of his. Um, and it's not named, but I could, I might venture some guesses. It's also a, another dreamer, right? Uh, another guy yeah. who lives in the dreamlands. So, uh, that yeah, did he, he mentions it somewhere, right? It's, it's gotta be, mm-hmm. right? Well, I mean, he I says, like- yeah, it says, um, I shall ask him when I, nef- when I see him. For I expect to meet him shortly in the city, in a certain dream city we both used to haunt. It is rumored, oh, yeah, all, yeah. like he's going to bed, like he's he's getting his nightcap <laughs> on and he's finishing writing this little story. And I don't know who the audience is for this story. That, yeah, that there are twists of time and space, a vision and reality which only a dreamer can divine. And from what I know of Carter, mm-hmm. I think he has merely found a way to traverse these mazes. So, yeah, the 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 implied, na- yeah. Narrator is a dreamer themselves. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Well, th- there is an answer in Through the Gates to the Silver Key. Aha. Uh-huh. I haven't yes. read that one, so tell us more. Oh. Yeah. That begins where a mysterious Indian Swami um, rocks up and says he has news of where Randolph Carter is. And there's a, he calls a, a conclave of interested parties to reveal all. Uh, one of them is. An elderly eccentric of Providence, Rhode Island, who enjoyed close correspondence with Carter. I'm quoting <laughs> there. Uh, and, and to quote, it was this old man, Ward Phillips, oh who my. pleaded most loudly against the apportionment of Carter's estate to his heirs, all distant cousins, on the ground he was still alive in another time dimension and might well return someday. Mm. So it is Lovecraft, essentially. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, you know, he actually says that you know this old man also um, published a, a tale of Carter's vanishing, in which he hinted the now lost one reigned as king on the uh-huh. opal throne. Aha! Uh-huh. So that's yeah, it sort of fits. Um, I I must say, it's not my favorite of of all of all the ones I've read. I've read Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. I've read uh, Statement of Randolph Carter. And uh, what's the one we did, Mr. Jim Moon, a while ago that has two guys sitting in a graveyard? The Unnameable. Uh, the Unnameable. Um, <laughs> I, that one, I think, is really fun and a funny joke. Statement of Randolph Carter is a great introductory story. Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is it's basically like living a dream while you're reading it. Um, this one, I, I feel like it's a crisis story. Like, he's having a personal crisis, especially at the beginning. Like yeah, I think one hundred percent. Right, like like it's very sad. Oh, like super sad. Yeah, and I can see like like I can I don't say violently disliked it. <laughs> I don't I don't violent, but I feel like mm, he's become disenchanted with reality um, because uh, he's been disenchanted with with his dream world, and he's got. And I was like, also, like, also, this is Lovecraft's philosophy. Like, he's philosophizing in fiction. Um, yeah. Go for it. You can really feel him, like, the um, that idea of a man who's pretending to act in a certain way to fit into a society, you know, and just, yep. like, the, the sadness. The whole, oh, yeah, dreams and fantasies are meaningless, and I'm a professional writer, and yeah, focusing on real life and real human emotions when he doesn't 
believe that at all. Mm-hmm. And he's just sort of trapped in this role. Yeah, well-meaning philosophers had taught him to look into the logical relations of things and analyze the processes which shaped his thoughts and fancies. So I read that as um, there, you know, Lovecraft sits down at a dinner table with somebody and he says, I have this amazing dream. And then they say, aha, let's get some Freud going here. Jung, mm. right? And then, and then <clears throat> he's like, oh, well, maybe they know what they're talking about. And then sort of he hears that a lot. And it's almost like, oh my God, this is like, they're trying to stamp out his imagination. They're trying to, um, make him conform because he's acting kind of silly, right? And then he does it. Put away childish yeah. things, as it were. Yeah. Mm. He puts away his childish things. And then, like, and it I, is the thing you hear people do to children. Like, yes, don't absolutely. be silly. Oh, yeah. Mm. I think also at the time, there's a, a, a very distinct cultural shift to modernism, mm. which I know, I know Lovecraft, he, I mean, you, you started out wanting to be a poet. Um, and Clark Ashton Smith, you know, was a very successful poet. If there is but such then, a thing, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then fashions abruptly changed in the, in the twenties and the kind of the uh, sort of beautiful sort of, you know, um, esoteric and very, you know, opulent sort of prose that was very, very fashionable in poetry and literature abruptly changed and everyone went to a modernist, or you might say a brutalist style of mm-hmm. where it, all that stuff was just purple posy, forget it. We want you. We need poems about the automobile, about communism, about you know, about factories. We mm. don't have time for fairy glades and flights of fancy. Everything else, you know, and you see that kind of in art. You go from kind of you know, the beauty of Art Deco to the kind of you know, very brutalist sort of early cubism and modernism and vorticism, where it's kind of yep, what do we need here? A ton of grey, and it must not look like anything. And God, it shouldn't look pretty. <laughs> It should be geometric and harsh, and I, I pick up a lot of that sort of. I think Lovecraft always felt he was a man out of time, but I think he started probably to feel it very acutely around this point of where kind of like suddenly everything that was old is on the scrap heap, and particularly after the Great War, that was a big. I think that sort of did spur on modernism, no end of that kind of have a radical break with what went before because he had failed so badly in producing the First World War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, definitely. That, that, that's yeah, that's that, that's definitely a thing through a lot of writers of this period. The the First World War mm. kind of kind of was a was something that they had to come to grips with from from Lovecraft to Tolkien. It's like mm. it, 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 it it was a it was a breaking of genre and convention of what life and civilization was. This, um, it was also a big wake-up call of kind of all this progress. Oh, great, we've industrialized warfare. Oh, oh great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because it, Lovecraft was hugely devoted to science. And I find it interesting in this story, I think we get really a very clear statement of how he feels about things. On one hand, yes, he's a rationalist, he's a materialist, he's a scientist, but he's also a poet, and he doesn't actually like the use, the overextension of science to snuff out creativity to mm-hmm. snuff out imagination to to junk history and tradition and you know carter's view is, is kind of 
all right, some of these are all, you know, there's no scientific basis for any of these, but they were worth something. And in fact, they were the only mm-hmm. damn thing we've got. <laughs> and he certainly even goes a, a step further yeah. and says that even knowing science, like how things work, um, takes away the beauty of it, like, which mm-hmm. is, I, I don't agree with that, but that was kind of an interesting, like that's even further than just saying, um, yeah, science versus fantasy. It's like, and science is making things uglier. Let me let me read a section here because this is it's like um, it's it, it seems in stark contrast to a lot of the stuff that he writes because uh, I I always see it like there's two sides of him right there's the Dream Quest stuff which is very much about um, basically living in an insane reality of dream. Um, it, it has nothing to do with the, and, and that's what this story is about in large part, in large part. Um, and then there's the, um, the, what everybody likes to call the Cthulhu mythos. And I don't care anything about that, but what I do care about is that that part is, is about saying, no, there is this deep time and there is this, um, uh, deep, this deepness of space. And you take those two things together and they make us feel insignificant and they, don't are they're doing so correctly right it, it are anytime we think of ourselves as being all up and uh, amazing uh with poetry or you know a painting or a film or anything like that we're fooling ourselves and we're we are incorrect because the grinding of the wheel continues over millennia and eons and you know it grinds slow but fine and 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 there's no one even there to witness it, right? That's the depths of space and the depths of time. Um, so it's all meaningless. So there's that. And then there's this uh, almost womb-like, dream-like childhood innocence of... Um, and they're in conflict with each other. And in, in my mind, that's how his sort of two kinds of stories go. And when I read his poetry, um, I spend more time in the dreamlike section. And when I read his... His stories generally they're not dream dreamland stuff, um, or or they're trying to reconcile that the the two and you know escape from one to the other. Um, one of the reasons I was wondering why you know if Leslie S. Klinger was going to do a third book, uh, you know, collecting and annotating Lovecraft, um, is because the uh, there's stories that I'd like to know a lot more about, like. Um, uh, one of the earliest ones we did on this podcast, um, is a collaboration and I'm trying to remember the name of it, but basically it's, it ends with a, or begins with a guy dying and then he travels into the dreamlands and there's like a tiger hiding in the bushes or something. And like, where did this all come from? It's a dream, obviously. And it's, a, it's, you know, an expansion of a person's idea, but I, I want to know more about it. And it's just beautiful um, in a way that this one is um, sort of, it's got that sort of very weird connection between the softness of the, of the moss and the gears of harsh reality. Like, like he's trying to sell mm. books. Right. Mm. And, and then we find out at some point in this story uh, that he puts away his childish things and he starts writing uh, novels of, of the, I don't know, normal, <laughs> of the mainstream. Yeah. And 
And then he he says they're well received, which is interesting. And then he burns them. And I'm like, who are they yeah, well received the, by? Right? Yeah, by the empty head, he calls them. Yeah, but <laughs> wait a second. Did did he publish them, and that's how he knows they were well received, or did he read it and realize himself? Oh, this is going to be real, well received because this is a mimicking of that mimetic fiction, right? Mm-hmm. No, I take it that he burned his manuscripts I, largely because guess, they had been successful, and it's that right? kind of creative. Like, I'm done with this. I'm not doing any more, and I'm right. burning all the original. Man, I mean, I think that bit. I think maybe just to chime something uh, about his relationship with Weird Tales. I mean. Um, the claim that it was a very disliked story. I suspect that came from Farnsworth Wright, who was the editor, mm-hmm. who wouldn't publish anything Lovecraft wrote, basically. Well, uh, um, there, there is a yeah. poll in the back of every issue of Weird Tales. He says, you know, give us mm. your favorites. Now, it mm. is only the people who respond, right? It's not mm. uh, every reader. And as you know, uh, Mr. Jim, and uh, um, the more controversial shit you put into a show, the more mm. comments you get. Or, mm. you know, on YouTube, if you ask for comments, you get comments. But um, if if people just accept it and don't think much about it, and you haven't said anything radically untrue, they won't comment. So uh, <laughs> whether it was disliked or just not understood, I think is... Mm. Uh, obviously, uh, who's the guy who did the collaboration? E. Hoffman Price? Yeah, yeah. He obviously saw something in it, right? But also, by the time uh, Gates of the Silver Key was published, Farnsworth Wright was no longer editing the magazine. Mm-hmm. He was maybe only in name only, but he um, had various medical conditions. And in the late 20s, pretty much his assistants were doing it. Mm-hmm. And also, E. Hoffman Price, he worked, he wrote all everywhere. He got on very well with all the editors, mm-hmm. which probably helped. But also, by that point, though, I think, you know, the you know Lovecraft was popular with readers, and even though Wright would forever you know forever go oh Shadow of Innsmouth rubbish, take your frogmen bog off, it's too long, I hate it, you know. <laughs> and a lot of it, I think, does come down to the fact that um, there was Lovecraft had been offered the editorship mm-hmm. <laughs> before Wright had, and I think Wright had a chip on his shoulder. But there was also the business over the um, the uh, Love Dead as well, which got Weird Tales into trouble. I think Farnsworth Wright was always slapping Lovecraft down for that and never forgave him for it. It's such a good story. We got to do that Mm. one at some point. It's so funny. It makes me laugh so hard. Is there an audio version? There is actually. uh, Julia Morgan recorded one. So oh, oh, then we we should do that. Maybe get Julia on the podcast. Hard drive Mm. here, so we could definitely do Mm. it if she gives us permission to do so. Um, yeah, it's one of those things. I think a lot of Lovecraft is, especially these days, often beaten about kind of. He's very prudish. He hated sex, and it's kind of. Yeah, if you look at the drawings Clark Ashton Smith did for the Lurking Fair with those very dubious tree roots, which Lovecraft clearly got a kick out of, and you read the Love Dead, there's not more sex in his story because you you knew he'd get him into hot water more than anything else. I think. Well, uh, yeah, so yeah, those tree, those tree roots remind me of a. An incident in the the movie The Evil Dead, and that just makes me shiver. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a guy on Twitter. I'm trying to remember his name who wrote a book all about Lovecraft and sex. And I'm like, um, I don't think there's that much, but I, I'm wrong. <laughs> there is a lot. I mean, if, if we did a show on the thing on the doorstep, and that had a lot of it, it's implied, right? It's not all on mm-hmm. the screen, but it's definitely happening. But he has a disdain for the flesh. In the way that the 
you know, case from Neuromancer does, right? Um, he's all about cyberspace, right? He's like, fuck the body. That's just the meat that gets you into cyberspace. We don't care mm. about that stuff. Um, we want to, we want to be playing Fortnite or whatever, right? Playing <laughs> <laughs> PUBG. Exactly. Exactly. Every night long. Um, so I, I do, I do often and frequently talk about how funny Lovecraft is. I tweeted about two poems. Um, and they're often about sex. Uh, there's one that's terrific I've done on Reading Short and Deep. Actually, they're both done for Reading Short and Deep. One's called uh, The Dream. Um, and I think that was for written for Maurice Wintermow. I think that's his name. Mm-hmm. A friend of his who uh, apparently had just had a... Um, uh, he's like mooning over a girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he, get, uh, he writes a poem that is making fun of of his mooning over the girl. Um, and there's some masturbation sort of scenes maybe mentioned <laughs> hinted at. And then um, there's this, you know, he's going to make himself worthy of her. He's not going to stay up late playing pool anymore. Um, he's going to devote himself to her. And then, you know, after a couple hours go by, he's like, ah, fuck it. I'm going drinking. <laughs> and then there's this gorgeous gorgeous poem called unda or the bride of the sea um oh yes yeah it's gore it's like it's it proves that lovecraft uh can mimic other people's stuff perfectly right like he 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 takes the form of a romantic beautiful gorgeous poem and he does it and then he adds this epilogue that says, yeah, swear off girls, <laughs> which absolutely does not fit the previous. And so if you go to YouTube and you type in Unda or the Bride of the Sea or just the Bride of the Sea, um, they always leave off the epilogue <laughs> because the epilogue is it's um, him doing uh, Swift, Jonathan Swift. Jonathan Swift does these m- very mocking poems about, you know, there's this one, I, another one I did, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but maybe Mr. Jim knows the one. That it's, not, it's not the one about Celia, is it? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's about, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but basically, um, it's a bride and groom, uh, you know, on their wedding night and they go to bed. Um, but before they consummate the marriage, um, she gets out the chamber pot. <laughs> yes, that's what, what I'm thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> and there's all these smells, and sounds, and uh, like, and it's basically Lovecraft. <laughs> What's that one called? That sounds hilarious. It is so fun. Uh, Clefon and Stroy might. Uh, I'll look it up by typing in my own website. Yeah, I think I think it's the ladies' dressing room. I think. That, oh, let me look. Let me have a look. Uh, so I type in Swift, and what do we get? He's, he's, uh, Strephon and Chloe is the one I'm thinking of. Uh, I can read it here. It should pop up. Um, <laughs> Strephon, oh, maybe, maybe this is another one. Strephon and Chloe, uh, 1731. Of Chloe, all the town has rung by every size of poet's song. So beautiful, a nymph appears but once in 20,000 years. By nature formed with nicest care and faultless to a single hair, her graceful mien, 
Her shape and face confessed her of no mortal race. And then so nice and so genteel, such cleanliness from head to heel. No humors gross or frowsy steams. No noisome whiffs or sweaty streams. (laughs) Before, behind, above, below could from her taintless body flow. Would so discreetly things dispose. None ever saw her pluck a rose. Um, That's a euphemism, I think. Her, <laughs> her dearest comrades never caught her squat on her hams to make maids water. <laughs> you, you swear that so divine a creature felt no necessities of nature. In su- summer, had she walked the town, her armpits would not stain her gown. At country dances, not a nose could in the dog day smell her toes. Her milk-white hands, both palm and, palms and backs, like ivory dry and soft as wax. Her hands, the softest ever felt, uh, through cold would burn, though dry would, though cold would burn, though dry would melt. Dear Venus, hide this wondrous maid, that, that, nor let her loose to spoil your trade. While she engrosses every swain, you but o'er half the world reign, can reign. Think what a case all men are now in. What ogling, sighing, toasting, vowing, what powdered wigs, what flames and darts, what hampers full of bleeding hearts, what sword knots, what poetic strains, what billets do, and clouded canes. But Strephon, here's the hero, Strephon sighed so loud and strong he blew a settlement along, and bravely drove his rivals down with coach and six, and house in town. (laughs) He's got stuff, so he gets her. <laughs> the bashful nymph no more withstands because her dear papa commands. The charming couple now unites. Proceeds we to proceed we to the marriage rites. <laughs> and uh, you have to remember that uh, uh, Swift is a, a minister. <laughs> In Primus <laughs> at the temple porch stood Hymen with a flaming torch. Uh, that Hymen is a god, I think. Um, the smiling Cyprian goddess brings her infant loves with purple wings. The pigeons billing, sparrows treading, fair emblems of a fruitful wedding. The muses next in order follow, conducted by their squire, Apollo. Then Mercury, with silver tongue and Hebe, goddess ever young, behold the bridegroom and his bride walk hand in hand and side by side. She by the tender graces dressed, but he by Mars in scarlet vest. The nymph was covered with her flamium, and Phoebus sung the epithalium epithalmium and last to make the matter sure dame juno brought a priest demure luna was absent on pretense her time was not till nine months hence the rites performed the parson paid in state returned the grand parade with loud huzzas from all the boys that now the pair must crown their joys but still the hardest part remains strephon had long perplexed his brains how with us high and nymph he might demean himself on the wedding night. For as he viewed this person round, mere mortal flesh was all he found. His hand, his neck, his mouth, his feet were duly washed to keep them sweet. With other parts that shall be nameless, the ladies else might think me shameless. <laughs> That's the uh, narrator intruding. Uh, the weather and his love were hot. And should he struggle, I know, I know what. Why let it go? If it, if I must tell it, he'll sweat, and then the nymphs may smell it. <laughs> oh 
my god. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> while she had no idea. While she had goddess dyed in grain was susceptible of stain, and Venus like her fragrance can exhaled ambrosia from within. Can such a deity endure a mortal human touch impure? How did the humbled swain detest his prickly beard and hairy breast? His nightcap, bordered round with lace, could give no softness to his face. Yet if the goddess could be kind, what endless raptures must, must he find? And goddess have now uh, and then come down to visit mortal men, to visit and to court them to a certain goddess, God knows who, as in a book he heard it read, took Colonel Peleus to her bed. But what if he should lose his life by venturing on his heavenly wife? For Strephon could remember well that once he heard a schoolboy tell how Semele of mortal race by thunder died in Jove's embrace. And what if daring Strephon dies by lightning shot from Chloe's eyes? While these reflections filled his head, the bride was put in form to bed. He followed, stripped, and in he crept, but awfully his distance kept. Now... Ponder it well, ye parents dear, forbid your daughters guzzling beer, <laughs> and make them ever afternoon forbear their tea or drink it soon, that ere to bed they venture up, they may discharge it every sup. If not, they must in evil plight be often forced to rise at night, <laughs> keep them to the wholesome food confined, nor let them taste what causes wind, wind. Uh, tis then the sage of Samos means forbidding his disciples beans. <laughs> oh, but think what evils must ensue while Miss Molly, the jade, will turn it blue. And when she once has got the art, she cannot help it for her heart, but out it flies even when she meets her bridegroom in the wedding sheets. Carminative and diuretic will damp all passion sympathetic. And love such nice nicety requires one blast will put out all the fires. Since husbands get behind the scene, the wife wow the wife should study to be clean, nor give the smallest room to guess the time when wants of nature press. But after marriage <laughs> practice more decorum that she did before to keep her spouse deluded still and make him fancy that she will. In bed we left the married pair. "'Tis time to show how things went there. "'Strephon, who had been often told "'that fortune still assists the bold, "'resolved to make the first attack, "'but Chloe drove him fiercely back. "'How could a nymph so chaste as Chloe, "'with constitution cold and snowy, "'permit a brutish man to touch her? "'Even lambs by instincts fly the butcher. "'Resistance on the wedding night "'is what our maidens claim by right. "'And Chloe, tis all agreed, "'was made in thought, in word and deed.' Yet some assign a different reason that Strephon chose not proper, no proper season. Say fair ones must I make up. Oh my God, this thing goes on forever. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. Um, I, I forgot how long it is, but, um, yeah, it's less than half an hour to read, but basically you can see it's, it's incredibly raunchy. Um, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> I believe this was given as a wedding toast. Wow. Can you imagine that? Um, 1731, a wedding toast? People are <laughs> weird, <whole> right? <laughs> and the whole toast is basically, well, lady, hold it in. Yep, don't drink too much beer because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to need it. You're going you're gonna to regret it later. 
Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a companion poem, which is the one I was thinking of, which does feature Strephon again. Oh, yeah. This time fixating on a lady called Celia. So he goes into a, sneaks into a bedroom and finds finds things out he didn't want to didn't want to know. <laughs> a filthy wash face and dirty clothes. <laughs> uh, it does have a, if I can find it, um, where is it? A particularly immortal line that quite shocked me when I did it in school <laughs> because it's kind of, what I didn't think I was a bit this language from a poem from this era, right? But uh, thus finished his grand survey, disgusted Strephon stole away, repeating in his amorous fits, Oh, Celia, Celia, Celia shits. Wow. <laughs> 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 uh. oh. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of, uh, humor that Lovecraft appreciates, I think is, is the sort of the making fun of people who are taking, taking serious, what we would think of as seriously romantic things seriously. He thinks that's ridiculous and that, you know, it's like, oh, uh, no, don't tell me about your love love for somebody because that's ridiculous and and so uh, you know it's not maybe uh nice <laughs> he's not like uh you know saying oh that's good you're gonna have a nice relationship with that person but it is funny <laughs> it legitimately <laughs> is funny so he makes fun of the the friends of him who are mooning uh, his that are mooning over girls and sort of getting all and he he makes fun of the whole concept and he can do it beautifully so what i see here is he's now unfortunately in this story he's turned his own mockery on himself and we get a lot of lines like that in in the beginning of this mm -hmm. um i want to read this is on page 42 starting at the bottom of the first column going into the second column um once in a while though he could not help seeing how shallow fickle and meaningless all human aspirations are and how emptily our real impulses contrast with those pompous ideals we profess to hold, then he would have recourse to the polite laughter they had taught him to use against the extravagance and artificiality of dreams. For he saw that the daily life of our world is every inch as extravagant and artificial and far less worthy of respect because of its poverty and beauty and its silly reluctance to admit its own lack of reason and purpose. That is some deep dark sad stuff there right there because it's it's very hitting. dark and sad it's and hitting amen oh my god it's hitting us right where we live right mm -hmm. in this way he became a kind of humorist oh my god that's so sad because it's it's the dark humor right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and for he did not see that even humor is empty in a mindless universe devoid of any true standard of consistency or inconsistency <laughs> holy shit <laughs> in this, in the first days of his bondage, notice that he's become a slave. In the first days of his bondage, he had turned to the gentle churchly faith endeared to him by the native, sorry, naive trust of his fathers. For thence stretched mystic avenues, which seemed to promise escape from life. Ah, uh, yeah. Only on closer view did he mark the starved fancy and beauty, the stale and prosy triteness, and the owlish gravity and grotesque claims of sordid truth, which reigned boresomely, great word, and overwhelmingly amongst most of its professors. That is an indictment right there, and true. 
uh, or feel to the full the awkwardness with which it sought to keep alive as literal fact the outgrown fears and guesses of a primal race confronting the unknown. He's attacking Christianity um, right where it lives and saying, right. you suck. And all you guys <laughs> who are professing it, you, you don't see how pathetic it is. It wearied Carter to see how solemnly people tried to make earthly reality out of old myths, myths which every step of their boasted science conf- confuted. There's another good vocab word. And this misplaced seriousness killed the attachment he might have kept for the ancient creeds they had been content to offer the sonorous rites and emotional outlets in their true guise of ethereal fantasy. So... I can see why people reading this in Weird Tales would not like it, because I don't like it either. It's making me very sad. Um, it, it, it's supposed to be. It, that, I mean, that's that's his point. I mean, he's doing that for an effect. I, no, I, but I, I, I see what you're saying, Paul, but there are other stories like um, Celepheus that have the same sort of outline that, as this story. But there, the the attack is not upon himself. Right? I see what you're saying. Like there, it's, you know, the greediness of men. And yeah, we can pity the poor guy who there's a, you know, this is also Lord Dunsany very much. A lot of the time there's these characters who work at, you know, selling things and then they go off into dreamland by either taking drugs or reading nice, books. Nice or tag sleeping. for our next week's show. Dude, they're, they're real tied together. Um, yeah. In a, in a, you can see why he loved him so much, but uh, this idea of of I see. I think Marissa, why this is so painful is because it's like Philip K. He's doing a Philip K. Dick here. He's writing about himself. Yeah, for sure. Right, like this is not this is uh, Randolph Carter. Is, we always think of him as a character, but he's really just another way of saying Lovecraft. Um, in a yeah, way, he's strongly mm, autobiographical. Right, like like I think. Uh, when we later on, he goes back to childhood and he's hanging out with the dryads. I've got that line here on page 48 at the top, first column. Once in his ascent, Randolph Carter crossed a rushing stream whose fall, whose falls a little way off sang runic incantations to the lurking fawns and Egypans and dryads. So there, you got your waterfall there, Paul. Um, this <laughs> beautiful sound, the beautiful, uh, you know, mystic, fantastic childhood place, which was real for him, right? That he's talked about in the tomb. Um, those fantasies of childhood are real and he's recapturing them. Um, that's pathetic too. Like, I think what's so painful about this story is that it's saying, um, he had his childhood, you know, ripped out from under him and uh, rudely it hurt made him greatly pained. And then this guy spends all sorts of time and effort trying to make himself whole again. And then he goes and he somehow, you know, finds this key and he returns to childhood. And that's kind of, that's even worse, right? It's kind of even worse. It worse than the one, what's the one Mr. Jim Moon where he, the, we find the body of the guy f- flopping in the waters near Trevor Towers. That's Celeface. Celeface, right. Yeah, so that, yeah. that's a sad story, but we're happy at the end mm. because we know mm. that he's in, he's king of King Kiranis or whatever, right? He's happy. But 
uh, some say that, that it's just a body of a homeless man, right? Fell off mm-hmm. the cliff. Um, here, because it's so real, <laughs> because it's so, I think, about Mr. HPL himself, it's traumatic, I think. And, and, um, I, I don't know if this is true, uh, uh, but I, there was, I was looking through YouTubes and, you know, the internet trying to find more stuff about this. There's a guy on YouTube who does a kind of strange show called Ask Lovecraft. You guys seen this show? I have no. not. Okay, so he dresses up in a, you know, black suit and he's brushes his hair to look like Lovecraft. He's got a little bit of a, that aspect. And I guess he answers questions that people, um, give him. And yet he's, you know, he's just pretending to be Lovecraft. He's not actually Lovecraft, but he pretends to be Lovecraft. And he did a show on the silver key. And while, you know, there's a sort of crappy drape in the background, um, he's doing his best. And you can hear in the distance through the microphone that some kids are playing or something, right? So it's kind of got that sad, um, not very well put together thing. But then he tells the story of, you know, some of you have asked me about the silver key. And he tells a story about what, what what's the story behind the silver key. And he says, when I was very young, my grandfather Whipple had a key. Do you know if this is true, Mr. Jim? Because I haven't found any evidence for it. Not that I know of. I, mean, I know that the, you do have this close relationship with Carter and his grandfather, which I think is very much drawing on Lovecraft's own memories of his grandfather, who yeah. he was very close to. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he says in this video um, that he... he uh, was, you know, sneaking around uh, his grandfather's library and house, and he opened a drawer in his desk, and he found, uh, wrapped in a parchment, a silver key. And he was very excited by this, and he took it and tried every drawer and um, and door, and he couldn't find a key to fit it. And he looked and looked and looked. He went through all the house, and he was very excited about what it was. And then... He eventually came back to his grandfather, who was now in his office, and said, Grandfather, what is this key open? And he, the grandfather took the key from the boy, and he uh, locked the drawer, which held the key, and then he unlocked it and put the key inside. And I... Th- I don't know if this is a true story, but it's like, damn, that really gets sort of the basis behind this, right? So this key only locks the th- place where the key is locked. And it's, it's got that circularity, right? Mm. That this story has. The key here is a, is a way to get into the imagination in childhood. Um, he can go back and bring bring with him sort of the wisdom of children, right? Saying things, you know, isn't there a TV show, those funny clips that kids say? Kids say the darndest <laughs> things, something like that, right? They just express sort of uh, crazy ideas that their parents could never conceive of, but they they come across as, like, profoundly wise and wise beyond their years, you know? Oh, Biden's kind of creepy, <laughs> Right? Like, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is the kid says that the parent is like, oh, my God, they got them. they nailed him. Right. Because they they're sensing in their naivete. We have that in here. He's he we're told uh, has wisdom beyond his years. Right. It's here. Yeah. 
Mm. Say it says now it is agreed by all the distant relatives of Randolph Carter that something occurred to heighten his imagination in his tenth year. Um, I bet that's true for Lovecraft, right? Something occurred. Um, his cousin, Ernest B. Oppenwall, Esquire of Chicago, is fully 10 years his senior and distinctly recalls a change in the boy after the autumn of 1883. Randolph had looked on scenes of fantasy that few others can have beheld, and stranger still were some of the qualities which he showed in relation to the very mundane things. He seemed in fine to have picked up an odd gift of prophecy and reacted unusually to things which, though at the time without meaning, were later found to justify singular impressions in subsequent de decades as new inventions, new names, and new events appeared one by one in the book of history. People would now and then recall wonderingly how Carter had years before let fall some careless word or undoubted connection with that, uh, what with what, what was, was then, then in the far future. future. So this is the connection, I would say, you know, between the imagination, fantasy, and science fiction, especially science fiction, to, um, you know, when you read a uh, 1966 uh, story by Frederick Pohl about how nobody's going to care about what gender you are in the future. Gay um, million. Yep. Uh, it seems like a prophetic story. It's just because he's exercising his, his imagination in sort of a disciplined way or an undisciplined way, perhaps. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sort of what this story is about. And it's sort of subtle and it's very depressing. And that's why it's not loved. Did you notice all yeah. this? Go for it. I said, is it though a sad story? I always thought it was. I thought it was a sad circular story. But when mm. I read it this time, I thought, no, no, I think I understand what the silver key does. Mm. It gives you the power not to go back, but to do again. And that line, his relatives now agree, is that hint that in the past they mm. might not have agreed, <laughs> that mm -hmm. something has changed and their memories have now been altered accordingly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's something about that, like, um, you know, your grandparent or something says to you, you better appreciate what you have now, because they've been, they've been through that, you know, that period of your life that you are just now going into. You need to appreciate what you have now here. Take it all in, because you won't get to go there again. Mm. Right? That sort of sits you down wisdom, say, like, you know, yeah, it might seem like... uh not what you want to do right now. You want to play with your Star Wars toys or whatever it is. Um, but you know, you should, you should go on this, this field trip to wherever it is. Um, because I, I think there's something very sad about living in nostalgia, right? Like it's, it's really terrible, it's but if super you, sad. it's, it's like, it's pathetic in a way that, you know, almost nothing else is pathetic because, it, and it's not the same as, you know, wanting to live in your dreams because they're different. But if mm. you have, if you were given that opportunity to go and experience, um, all those things again that made your childhood good, not the bad stuff, but the good stuff, um, I don't think anybody could resist it because the delight you, you, you had, the honest, honest emotions that you had would, I think if you're open to the idea would be irresistible. 
what do you mean it would be irresistible? I'm just thinking like, you know, um, how exciting things are when you're a kid are related to the fact that everything's new, right? Uh, right. So you're saying like you would, it, there's no way that you would give, uh, that you would reject that. You would go back. Yeah. It's uh, so yeah. to me, nostalgia is like a mistake today. Like if I spend a lot of time saying, yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay, so really remember that time? Like, fuck that shit. That's what I think. But, um, <laughs> It's it, it, there's a push pull there, right? So the reason it's attractive is because we have these, you know, experiences that we want to re-embrace, and yet, yeah, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say we were talking just before this about, um, you know, that I've just been in New Zealand, and that's all my childhood is there. You know, like mm-hmm. I left 16 years ago, so it's very. Um, contained my like different parts of my life. Mm-hmm. So when I go back there and relive all these childhood memories and hear music and things that I haven't heard for years, like um, it was really nice. But I'm so depressed now. <laughs> <laughs> like that was awful. <laughs> like it's such a sad thing. I think that's why the story was even sadder to me because it was mm. like I've just come back from that, like reliving your childhood thing. And yeah, it is irresistible. And, and it, at it, the same time, I'm it, like, God, I'm so depressed. It only goes one. <laughs> it only goes one way, Maris. Nobody ever says I'm going to really enjoy that time when I'm 71, and my kids bring me a birthday guitar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you never, you never project into the future and say this is the thing that I am enjoying because that doesn't make any sense, obviously. Mm-hmm. But we always are looking backwards, right? Everything is. This is why, you know, if you want to live today, you should spend all your time studying history, is my thinking, because you, seeing what's going on, like, in the news or, you know, there's some coronavirus, something something happening, or they're changing the name of it. We don't know how this is going to work out, but um, if you study the SARS epidemic, um, you know, you actually have some grasp of actually what's going on in a way. So it, it, it makes a ton of sense to spend time focused on the past. But it doesn't make a ton of sense to spend time living in the past, right? Mm-mm. And and that's kind of the tension here, I think, between like, seriously, um, it's weird. I, I started noticing more people tweeting dreams. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe it's because I, I started doing it a little publicly. My mom was telling, you know, she did this one added me about a lava flow and how she was really good she was good with it it was it was okay that everything was you know getting buried by lava and like, <laughs> yeah yeah that's a go with the flow mom <laughs> um yeah, so I, I, yeah, I remember a few years ago i tweeted a dream and then someone said why would you ever tweet a dream yeah and now i see lots of people do it it's like it's interesting I was, right I, I, it's like people have changed uh it, it, we're sort of more re- we're a lot more relaxed about stuff and like um today i uh, if i i'm trying to tell talk to kids today who are not you know under the vice of the church like like i wasn't a christian as a kid but it was everywhere everybody was under the vice of the church when i was a kid and it's the reason is you don't know fucking anything and there's these old guys who tell you um this is bad and that's bad and also these people are bad and and you're like well they do have a big hat <laughs> they do mm-hmm. stand on a podium, right? They do uh have people coming and listening to them every day and then the other kids are saying what they're saying. And so you don't know, 
right? All you can do is say, oh, doesn't sound right to me, right? And he's got that here. He's surrounded by people who are saying, you know, these fantasy stories you're writing are garbage. Um, what are you doing? Um, write about, write about, uh, mimetic desire, mimetic, uh, fiction, you know, people getting divorced and, uh, having trouble with their bosses and changing jobs and, and, uh, I don't know. Drinking less. I don't, I don't even know what those stories are about. But the, I think that that's sort of that, that, that's where the story is living is inside of these sort of crises of comprehension and understanding. And, and well, go for it. No, that got you finish your thought. I was just saying, like, um, I noticed how much smell came into this, like that box of aromatic wood. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. And mm. smell is super associated with. With, with memory, uh, with yes. memory and nostalgia, popular. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can still smell Hawaii. I haven't been there since 1979, but I can still smell it. You know, it, it's not just the scent of the air; it's also the, it's also the uh, the the emotional connections. But it, like, it, like how much water was in the air, right? And how when you step off the plane from frozen Canada. Um, <laughs> you feel it, it body bodily in a way that you don't. Uh, I I was thinking about this because uh, somebody in my family died, and uh, a relative who had a bunch of photos of that person sent them to my mom, and I'm like, holy crap! Uh, I sort of vaguely remember this. It's my sister's birthday, and there's a photograph of me and my mom and my sister, and uh, it's like that's Hawaii. Wow, amazing, right? But if I lived there. In that photo, or thinking about that photo, that's pathetic. So it's always like that getting that that scrapbook out and looking through your your old photos. This is what you do more and more as time goes by in your life because you're adding up more memories. But at the time, you know, when people around you are taking photographs, you're not thinking about those photographs at all. It's the only the adults and stuff that are capturing that. So that there's this mm-hmm. massive in- innocence, and then there's the loss of innocence that uh, is sort of this. I think this is what this story is trying to reconcile. Oh, and, it's so sad, right? <laughs> yeah, I think there's also the thing that as you get older, and it, I mean, I was 50 last year. I'm noticing something happened to me is that I'm beginning to realize the world I grew up with is now a museum piece. Mm. And while I, you know, I've sort of, you know, always said, you know, as we all do, I'm not going to be stuffy and crusty like my parents and my teachers <laughs> and be baffled by new things. <laughs> Every passing year, it gets a little bit harder to keep up. And you know, some yeah. things you start letting go, kind of, you know, okay, the kids are doing that. Fidget spinners, don't get it done. I'm, I'm old now. <laughs> you know, it's just begin- it is beginning to happen whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. And you start saying things like, literally, where my dad lives, I remember when all that was fields. And it's kind of, oh, shit. It's <laughs> you know, it's almost inevitable. You can't help doing it. Well, and I think there is that thing of the world you grew up with when you realize at a certain point that it is gone. Yes. And particularly in some of this story where, you know, the Great War is this big hinge point where so much changes and, you know, Lovecraft ends up, he's disillusioned with religion, but even sadder, he's disillusioned with science as well, or rather yes. Lovecraft does Carter. And he says, no, no, we're doing that all wrong as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of, 
you know, where where is the hope, you know? And I think, although it is quite sad, there is kind of, you know, I think much like William Blake, who kind of, he accused Newton of unweaving the rainbow. Um, you know, he sees kind of his religion, his science is the art of the imagination. Mm. It is... And that, that's the way, you know, redemption is possible because although things are made up, how wonderful it is to make something up, mm. to take an mm-hmm. idea and, and, and put it on the page and put it, you know, give it a life of its own. That, I mean, that is magic. It is know, magic. As Alan Absolutely. Moore says, that's why magic is called the great art because it's the original art. It's, it's taking nothing and turning it into a something mm-hmm. in a, by, you know, a weird way of a, I think the story it does have a lot. I mean, there is a sadness, but I think there's a lot that struck me this time being very profound. Of kind of, you know, at the end of the day, we only have our own experience. And he is right. It's kind of why do we differentiate between well, this thing I read in a story is less real and therefore less meaningful than um, something I watched on the news, Mm. which was a story told by somebody else. Yeah, and he also he shows you the other side, like the uh, like the religion or all the things that we meaning on um the physical world and sort of shows that that is also all just delusion and you know things that we're adding to it artificially so you know why not go back into that or not even back like why not create new fantasies and just spend time in that world because it's all kind of the same shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) i i think about the you know the time period where i was like um i'm sort of getting mastery you know is like uh, there's these things called BBSs, bulletin board systems. And if you, if you get the phone, you plug it into your computer and you can call up the guy down the street who's got a bulletin board system. Like thinking about that I, and uh, Paul, yeah, you're in the right period for it too. Right? I'm in the right period for BBSs. Yes. But the thing is, is getting all that gamers. equipment together, like the TI 99 4A and plug it in into your modem and try, like, it's ridiculous. Try, like, but if you could say, Jesse, you want to go back in the time machine and, uh, hang out in your body for 24 hours um doing that old stuff with the memories of of that so that you know it's not a yithian thing right like this story is a time travel story but it's not a uh to a yeah yeah it's he's not the great race of yith sending him back right. no it's his, his own it's his own projection right um and that's kind of the sadness is that is that it's not that his body died. It's that his um, acceptance of the changing nature. And as you're right, Mr. Jim Moon, fidget spinners are not cool. Um, but whatever, whatever. I know. have I have a company branded fidget spinner on my desk at work. Thank you very much. <laughs> do you fidget? But with is it, it cool? I, I do. I do fidget with it. As a matter of fact. Oh my god! And I'm I, I'm and I'm only a couple years younger than the Jim. Disgust so. in Jesse's voice. <laughs> uh, see now you're making me sad, Paul. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a it's in the shape of a fan because my company company makes fans. Right. It's not making it better. Not making it, it, better. It, it, it makes. I know I'm not making us better, am I? Sorry. <laughs> So yeah, I would say that this is this is like the, the it's the amaranthine wine from Atlantis that you drink and become depressed while drinking. You know, it it's a fine flavor, um, and it brings up sadness of the past. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't satisfy you in the like 
I think about reading the statement of Randolph Carter, and what I love about it is that it, it, I, I believe it was based on a dream. I don't think this is. I think this is the opposite. It's based on all of the dreams, right? It's based on all of the experiences of, you know, going to the kitchen table and having some, or telling the kids at school about this dream you had and having them, or the teacher, even worse, you know, say, you need to study more math. <laughs> Cause he does right at the beginning, he, he slams hard, hard truths. Uh, when Randolph Carter was 30, he lost the key to the gate of dreams. So this story is circular, right? Mm. Where did the key go? <laughs> he took it away from himself, right? The key, the key is the only thing that exists in the universe. It's the only real thing. Wow. Uh, prior to that time, <laughs> nice. he had made up for the prosiness of life by nightly excursions to strange and ancient cities beyond space and lovely, unbelievable garden lands across ethereal seas. But as a middle age hardened upon him, he's only 30, but that that's true. <laughs> it hardened upon him. He felt these liberties slipping away little by little until at last he was cut off altogether. No more could his galleys sail up, blah, 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 right? And then he gets this um, you know, wonder had gone away and he had forgotten that all life is only a set of pictures in the brain. So this is why, you know, sh why shouldn't you spend all your time in the VR machine, Marissa? I should. Right? And then That's what I'm taking from the story. <laughs> <laughs> and then looking at you from the outside, right? You're just waving your arms and moving your head left and right. <laughs> and, you know, your body's getting all scabby and, you know, not all sweaty and your hairs, I was going to say your beard's growing long, but that doesn't make any sense. Um, your hair's growing all <laughs> matted because you're not, you know, spending any time in the, in the meat space. And you say, well, I'm spending time with my friends. <laughs> I say, it's time to get off the VR machine. My friends. <laughs> I'm spending time with my friends, mom. Uh, <laughs> um, there, there's some sort of, uh, sadness there. There's some sort of. There there Can is a do? sadness. I feel like the like I really like the story um, because I think because it talks about that sadness mm -hmm. and that darkness, and I find that very comforting. And I I do like that it does make those things like the maybe not the VR machine, well yeah VR, um, and like just being in a creative space and fantasizing like that is an okay space to be considering how freaking depressing and awful everything else is. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a solace that someone else out there has these ideas and yeah. theories and stuff, even if they're long dead. Mm -hmm. I was, I was, I was, I was thinking that there wasn't any racism in this. Cause you know, everybody's always worried about that. And I'm like, I think it might've got mentioned like the people of his race or something, but I think that is more like his family, like his namesake and that sort of thing. Um, not everything about Lovecraft is based on race, but a lot of it is. And then there's this other whole other world. And I think that, that fear and horror of race, um, all that stuff is tied up with, with the meat space and not the dream world. Mm. Right. When he goes to, uh, in the dream quest of unknown Kadath and he's, he meets, um, Pikmin, right. Who's now transformed into a, uh, into one of his subjects, <laughs> a ghoul, right? Um, he, it, there isn't a contempt or sadness there, right? It's just how it is. 
Well, there's this thing. I mean, I talked about when I did my show on the Shadow of Innsmouth that there's Lovecraft was a horror fan before he was a horror writer, mm-hmm. and like many horror fans, part of the appeal of horror is um, trying on the mask of the monster for yourself mm-hmm. and going, eh, maybe you know. You'll be so bad, you know. <laughs> yes. If you if you're a vampire, you get to stay up all night, stay forever young. <laughs> all right, you might have to eat people, but you could eat bad people, maybe. You know, and, and that's the premise of interview for the vampire. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you know, like while kind of you know the narrator of Pickman's model is, oh my god, this man was a monster. You know, Pickman has transformed. He's going to live forever in a slightly different shape, but he's going to be left alone and you can paint what he likes. No one's going to go, go Ooh, Pickman, he's a weirdo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he pick, and, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, Carter isn't, you know, oh, hello, Pickman, how are you doing? Looking good, still painting, <laughs> I see. <laughs> <laughs> but there is this whole, it's same with the shadow over in Innsmouth, you know, the narrator thinks he discovers a nest of horrors and he finds actually it's his family history. And actually it's a pretty good deal to be honest. Yeah. Even though he shafts them and bombs them, they go, Oh, well you're human, you're stupid, but you know, stupid right. humans. You know, yeah. <laughs> you'll go on the naughty step for a bit, but not for long. We're not really bothered. Frankly, come live with us under the sea. God's real. Look, I'll take you to his house. <laughs> you know, have some gold. <laughs> have as much as you like, you know? And I think there is that sort of thing that people overlook in Lovecraft, because he writes in, shall we say, by modern terms, a hysterical way, yes. even in his letters. I think people miss that sort of humour and that fun and that delight he has in the strange and the weird and, and how transformative that was for him personally. I mean, you know, if you read his letters, he's never happier when he's discovered um, a new author, when he's discovered a mm. Dunsany, mm-hmm. or he's discovered M.R. James, or Arthur Macken, and he's devouring these and people. he's sharing and it, too. He's sharing yeah. it with other people, saying, you got to read this, right? Yeah, and being be a complete, you know, like a, you know, a real fan, as we understand it now, Absolutely. before fandoms existed. That, what's, that, uh, what's that giant essay for, except for sharing this amazing set of fiction that he's discovered, right? Supernatural. Well, that's it. I think there's, there's so much in in Lovecraft. I think that you've got to look to his literary inspirations because uh, they sometimes trump everything else. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we tend to see, oh, this is a dreamland story. This is mm-hmm. a Cthulhu story. This is one that doesn't fit, and I don't like it anyway because it doesn't have Cthulhu in it. Mm-hmm. And but actually, there are. I find if you look at them chronologically when he's writing them, you see this development of ideas and this is kind of on one hand is the horror of kind of dark monsters and it's terrible. But then there's other stories where it goes, yes, there's monsters and alien gods and the dimensions, but by God, they're amazing. Mm-hmm. And you see that sort of flip flop in, um, these poem cycle fungi from Yugoth that this kind of this horror as being repellent, but then this horror as transcendence. And there's beauty and horror mm-hmm. and light in the darkness. And uh, that that's why Lovecraft's creations continue to resonate. And, uh, you know, I think currently, I think Lovecraft criticism is going down a, a bit of a wrong-headed path of trying to play armchair psychologist and mm. this kind of... Mm-hmm. No, I think we, think we should look at his bookshelf, not try and, you know diagnose someone we'd never met you know speaking- <laughs> from the assumption that you wrote horror fiction because he was a sick man no you wrote horror fiction because he was a horror fan <laughs> so there's a um uh, a scene in here where you know a line in here where he talks about getting from south america 
a str- strange fellow from South America, some liquid that he's going to use to kill himself. Um, this is <laughs> something he doesn't do. Uh, he avoids it in this story, but uh, facts concerning the late Arthur German and his family. Um, the truth he finds out about his family is destructive, right? Because it's the horror of miscegenation and all that. To me, um, he went the opposite. We just did a show on um, She uh, by H. Ryder Haggard, right? And you've got this guy, Horace Baboon Holly, um, who is, you know, he's ugly. He's rejected by girls. Um, you know, he ends up being the adoptive father of this, the handsomest man, you know, in the Europe, who uh, then goes on this, you know, giant quest. And to me, Holly is the, is the most interesting character. You know, he's strong. He's, he's got a good mind. Yeah, he's ugly. He looks like a baboon. Um, but just go with it, right? Like, that's the problem with, you know, I think Facts Concerning Arthur, the late Arthur German and his family is a comedy piece because it's so stupid that he would do what he did, be freaked out at his grandma's being a monkey. Just say, well, dude, monkey. We did are it cool. on this show, didn't we? Yeah, a while we did. Ago. Yeah. I think we both agreed that it's kind of, it seems to be more Lovecraft actually having a go at the people who, you know, want to do the Scopes monkey trial mm-hmm. and can't accept the facts of evolution. <laughs> it, 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 but he's, ta- he's taking their, their idea uh, then, mm. you know, that L- literally you're a monkey's uncle, <laughs> <laughs> a monkey's <laughs> nephew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, monkey's grandchild. Um, uh, uh, what, uh, why should we not, what's so funny, uh, and why that is such an interesting story is because she, um, is about, you know, going to Africa and finding this lady who's been alive forever and she's, she's the queen of this kingdom. It's the exact same story. She's a white ape, right? Mm. Um, but the difference is, uh, you know, he's taking it and not being it, uh, sort of a fantasy. He's saying, no, it's a science story and, it, and taking like, so that's the thing, right? Is this, there's a tension in this story between, the love of science and the, and so the acknowledgement that it's that there is this real reality rea- around us, the depth of space, the <laughs> DNA, even though they don't have the word yet, right? And then there's also this this imaginative space that has all about art and nothing to do with with uh, commerce, almost commerce, even though commerce is never mm. mentioned here. Right, but I think as a writer, I think Lovecraft's been very aware of that kind of as much he he loved science. You there isn't like an algorithm or an equation to you know you throw in a story and go, well, it's a good story because of this, and this is the formula, mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't work like that. You know, there is something there's always that sort of element X to creativity mm-hmm. that you can you can you can write to a formula, and you know you can, you can sort of as Lovecraft, many of the writers have in their early works, you can see them trying to write a story based on the writers and the stories they've enjoyed. And they've looked at those stories and go, okay, I think I see a formula and they try and do it. And you get mm-hmm. something that just doesn't work. <laughs> it's, it's at best pastiche and worst. It's, uh, unworkable yeah yeah and you know you find it's, i find it interesting you see it in a lot of different authors when you look at their early work and you see there's this process where they they literally have to find their own voice and create their own formulas from scratch mm-hmm. um and you know i think that's in this story i think 
as but you know, I know how Lovecraft was such a scientist in many ways, but at the same time he realized that science is good for explaining this amount of reality and how things are, but then it fails. You it can't be applied to things that are very subjective, like art, like perception of beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is again, it's something about kind of that perception of being able to see beauty and appreciate beauty. Uh, is it has a meaning in and of itself, and it's wrong to try and ascribe beauty as being a physical law or a theological um, aspect baked in. But just appreciating it in itself of itself is a worthy thing. It doesn't have to be tied to science or the spiritual to have meaning. Mm. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I say that, you see, I found that when I went back this one, I found there's a far more interesting story um, than I first took it for. And I think a lot of that's because I've sort of been trying to rethink how I think about Lovecraft because it's kind of, it's very easy. I think we've got to shake the decamp out of our view of Lovecraft of that. He wrote horror stories because he was a sick man. He wasn't as successful as me, even though I wrote 20 years later and I could bludge off Robert E. Howard and finish his stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to you know, move the, the traditional blinkers and try and dig into, I don't think there's lots of other aspects to Lovecraft than sometimes I think we're boiling him down to be a bit one note almost. Oh, yeah. And, the more, the more, it contains the more. Yeah, indeed. And that's, that's He's why really I really a thinker on the page. That's why I, I, mm. I think, you know, calling him a, a horror writer is very limiting because a lot of mm. it's not horror. Um, he technically wrote some science fiction if you, if you really want to. You if know. you squint. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but actually he's much more, he's, he's basically writing about philosophy of his own create like how he sees the world and how the world can be seen and then uh spinning up scenarios based on his own sort of interests and then mm. it, and so yeah they're very they're not easily classifiable and it's not there's no tentacles in almost any, yeah. <laughs> anything right that that's complete <laughs> bullshit um mm. and you know yeah there's a story with tentacles and there's another one there but what what I loved about this story being, you know, uh, why I would call it a dreamland story is because of the, how poetically poetic the lines are. There's a lot of the, uh, in, until we get that jarring bit of dialogue near the end, right? Randy, <laughs> like Randy, that's not a, <laughs> that's what he's called as a kid, right? Uh, Howie. <laughs> well, that's interesting. When I read that bit, it only struck me this time round, and, um, is that that's written actually to mimic, uh, I thought it was just a stereotypical kind of southern accent, but mm-hmm. actually looking at it closely of the phonetics you're using, Barbie. it's actually a New England main oh, yeah. accent. Yeah. With a dunt and mm-hmm. wood and mm-hmm. road becoming a rud and uh, the compression of consonants. You, ain't she told you to keep nigh the place in the afternoon and get back our fur mm. dark? Randy, Randy, <laughs> he's yeah, the beatenest boy from yeah. running off in the woods I ever see. Half the time I'm <laughs> setting mooning round in the snake den in the upper timber lot. Hey, you, Randy. <laughs> right, that, that, that Mooning back. around in that snake den. Mm, right. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what he was doing, right? He was out in the, out in the yard making forts and. Uh, <laughs> talking to dry, you know, instead of tea parties with uh, toadstools. Tea pipe? 
Tea parties with dryads. Yeah, he's he's um, he's uh, it's a, they'd be ceremonies, right? Uh. <laughs> oh, Luke Pearson, I see. There's an idea for a fantasy story: tea party with a Japanese dryad, like a tea ceremony. That there, there's there's a story seat, folks. Write it. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, I was thinking my mom is really big into uh, that, you know device alexa device and they have like sort of quasi podcasts they're called like i don't know she kept saying you know this is really big jesse i'm like eh, i don't think so it's all proprietary it doesn't matter but um it got me thinking early this morning um i actually have enough material for another podcast because it has to be short for those things i was going to call it six sentence stories or uh, maybe six or seven sentence stories because i do these ones for my students and and they, they're just, you know, you get a bunch of vocab words and then you write a sentence, um, and each sentence leads to the next one. They're ridiculous, right? These little silly stories, but they're really fun. <laughs> and that sort of little creativity, um, is like that, though, that, like, I, I get a stack of them and I forget about them and then I get, show them to a new student or something and I go through it to show them how to do it. And it's like, wow, that's like half of the delight of my life, right? It's like enjoying these ridiculous stories about a dangerous pig with pants. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's so great is you get these, uh, you know, you get these, and we're taking them from Lovecraft stories and Weird Tales stories, right? So you get these weird vocab words. And then somehow you can make them connect. And the connections are very deep within like i'll read a story for the podcast or something and then somehow it'll be reflected or somebody talks about uh pigs or something right and then somehow it's reflected in this and then um a student will tell me a story of you know some chinese myth and like that that's there's a story there right and it just somehow connects and uh that's what i love about reading lovecraft is he's he has not chained his his fortune to some marketplace. He's really unbridled and and yet he's disciplined, right? So he's made all this stuff and it's so original and not like I'm trying to yeah, he says I was doing Chase a market. It, yeah, it's the opposite of that, right? It's right. like he is the market. In the same way that Tolkien Right. He's, he's not saying I'm going to do what Lord Dunsany did. He's saying, I got this idea I'm working on. It's crazy. I know, but, um, I got to do it anyways. And then, Oh, somebody wants to buy it. That's great. Right. And he doesn't like say, where's, where's Lord of the Rings too? <laughs> Never comes into, into. So yeah, he'll do, uh, E. Hoffman's Price's, uh, sequel because he's a polite gentleman. Why not? Maybe there's an idea there. But he isn't trying to chase the market, and and that it's there, the purity there is unbelievable. That you don't like, I just don't see it in a lot of other folks. Clark Ashton Smith, yes, as well. I think is the same way. Um, I keep telling you guys, I'm reading this uh, night, a book he wrote when he was 14. Um, it's called The Black Diamonds, and it is so funny. He's the god of his his characters. And he's, it's like, almost like a role, there's a, like a dungeon crawl in it. And it's like, you know, it's from 
lot, how old was he when he was 14? Uh, he was 14, but I don't know when he was born, but he was, he was young. It was way before everything, right? And it's basically Arabian Nights and there's fist fights all over the place, sword fights all over the place. It, he absolutely planned nothing, but it's so raw and pure. It's just a delight. Like, it's like spending time listening to a kid talk about <laughs> their fort, <laughs> you know, and then unashamed. And it's, it's a, it's a pure delight. It's not a good book, but it's so entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you can see when he, when he's able to later on harness this, right? Harness this imagination and, you know, p- put it inside a, inside a, uh, a structure like a poem. Um, that he just revels in the language of, in the words and the construction. And it's amazing. So I, I want to do more Clark Ashton Smith because he has that sort of same spark, that same, um, even more so, I think, than Dunsany. He is a, he has a spark of, um, unadulterated, pure imagination, fantasy. It's so cool. Mm. So he so hasn't cool. been um, shamed out of it, like yeah, exactly. In the story. Y'all watch that documentary, right? That, uh, not yet. Oh, no. gotta watch it. Yeah, oh, my oh it's really good. Oh, it's what? Really why should the listeners tell tell them what documentary they should listen to? Uh, what's uh, what's what's it called? Uh, uh, the Emperor of Dreams. The Emperor, the Emperor Dreams, of Dreams. Right? There it goes. Mm-hmm. Hippocampus mm-hmm. Press has the DVD, mm-hmm. and uh, I highly, highly recommend it. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. It evolved into a story. And further hmm. statements about Randolph Carter. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the further statements, I think, were, it was like, it was like a ho, uh, basically it's saying you went on vacation, which was true. And I'm like, yes, oh my God. Yeah. And then it, I'm like, I'm like hip deep in the swamp. And then I'm realizing, oh, he's doing a story here. <laughs> Cause it just seems like a regular show. <laughs> Sneaky. Yeah. And yeah. very well done. Very, very well done. I'm, uh, I mean, I don't want to make people's cheeks all rosy and stuff, but. Or get their heads too inflated. But Mr. Jim Man's Fiction is very excellent. And uh, if you're not listening to his podcast, uh, noticing sometimes he doesn't, you know, uh, advertise the fact that he's doing a story by himself. Um, you'll notice that there's these good stories in there that are unattributed generally. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what's the uh, Beating the Bounds is the one I... I'm thinking oh about, yes, yes, that's a terrific story. Be a third part of this history here. Oh, so, excellent! Like, at some point, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I get time to write the damn thing. <laughs> it's a zombie, but um, not uh, not approached from a normal way. Mm. Very nice. It's a zombie non-apocalypse. Yeah, it's just like well, we gotta watch out for the edges. It's like me going walking in the woods here. There's bears. Gotta watch out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah good stuff okay so um i have what half of half of a full squad here we can still get a chicken dinner if we work hard <laughs> we're a winner chicken dinner okay 
So, uh, Evan's probably flying. Wayne is probably still, uh, in the depths of despair because, uh, I haven't heard too much from him. Um, or he's busy trying to finish the recording for <laughs> today. Um, but we can get started because I have a class in just under two hours and I want to be able to chat. And I have gaming and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah, so let me people get have lives outside of this, yeah. I think. Um, are you guys, you this is cutting in and out for me, Jesse. Is that happening to anyone else? I hope not. Mm, I hope not. Okay, I'm going to check. I'm steady my... so far, okay. thankfully. So it's probably off. your, your oh, internet. Completely lost it all. Uh-oh. She can't hear us at all now. Uh-oh. Crap. Um, yeah, it's coming in and out. I just heard that, but I lost everything else. Hmm. Um, I might... I don't know if it's on my end or not, but maybe I'll try and do a quick restart of yeah. everything. Yeah, reboot your modem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you guys aren't having any problems? No, it's all good on our end right now. All right, let me just do a reboot, and then I'll be back in a sure. second. No worries. Yeah. I rebooted my machine before before coming online, because I know it always does yeah. this to me otherwise. <laughs> and I changed my sound card or anything. I thought, I better just check this all still works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So um, while we're uh, waiting for Maris to reboot, I'll just tell you what's going on in the schedule here in case anybody wants to sign up for anything. Um, we got the King of Elfland's da- daughter next Saturday. Um, the King of uh, King-, King of Elfland's daughter on Saturday by Lord Dunsany, and then the Sunday after is King of the Elves. We're getting sort of a theme here uh, by Philip K. Dick. Uh, Tree of Life. Um, Mice has signed off of that one. Um, uh, she said it's not, it's not my thing. So that's scaring me. Uh, that's, uh, CL Moore. And then, uh, added, Paul, uh, you know about this, uh, Dream of Debs. Yep. Uh, by yep, Jack you, you, London. That's, that's our last ditch effort to convince you to vote for Bernie, since you're the only one capable of doing so. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I feel like I'm. The last best hope for peace, or something. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it's a, not any blue will do. Only one blue will do. Or or if you vote for for Tulsi, that'll work too. But she won't win. So, but uh, she, maybe VP. She might get VP. Not. We'll see. I I doubt that. Highly. We'll see, Paul. You don't know yet. He needs to have a legacy because you're so worried about him dying, and I'm so worried about him being assassinated. I, I am worried about him dying. Well, he's the same age as Bloomberg. Yeah, but Bloomberg hasn't haven't had a recent heart attack. And... Dude, he had stents too. Well, yes. I I think Bloomberg's had more expensive medical care because he's a bloody billionaire. I so see. I oh. and, and 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 you just look and and just judging from appearances on campaigns and whatnot. Bernie does not look Bernie's as healthy looked as like I like. Seventy-five-year-old man since the sixties. That's 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 not reassuring me. <laughs> well, he's aging well. He's aging into his age. Anyways, um, uh, how's life not under Brexit or uh, not? See, uh, everything went out of the news, Mister Jamoon. As soon as it happened, it's like, oh, it's over, and then they stopped talking about it. Well, that's a government directive. You're not to mention Brexit anymore now. Well, it's done, right? No, <laughs> no it's not done oh. at all. Oh, I thought I thought they <laughs> crashed out of the building and are on the uh, highway. No, 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 no. That's all bullshit. Oh, okay. Or it's bullshit. Ah. No, we don't actually. We're in what's called a transitional period. I uh, won't actually leave until the end of the year. Aha. Uh-huh. 
And when they've done absolutely fuck all to sort anything out, they'll probably extend it again. Oh, God. <laughs> because that's been the pattern so far. Yeah. <laughs> Already people are, are not getting happy. And there's a great tweet by some dipshit who was uh, going, whoa, I was held up an hour at immigration at uh, the Dutch airport of Schiphol. This wasn't the Brexit I voted for. And everyone <laughs> said, yes, it was. <laughs> if you're out of the EU, you have to go through immigration like everybody else. Right. It takes ages. You can't just want, walk through and wave your passport anymore. Mm. Tough. <laughs> oh, dear. So um, I've, I've got a good stock of I told you so pie at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny stuff. Uh, I mean, sad, but also funny. Well, so uh, Boris has this weird obsession with bridges. When he was London mayor, he spunked, I don't know, 150 million that we know of on this garden bridge project that didn't even get a blueprint for the money. And nothing has happened with it and never wow. will. And now he's proposing to build a bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland over the roughest part of the island. I saw that. Like, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> He's absolutely. He's just engineers ago. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's insane. You could but, do a tunnel, but it'd be—it's a long way. It is a long way. It's, and it's very be the biggest oh, tunnel in oh, the. God. Uh, that'd be I, the I, biggest I, I, tunnel I, I, in the world by like that—that'd be three or four times as long as as the one to France, right? At least. I mean, <laughs> easy. I mean, mm. But you might try doing it the kind of way they did the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, but. It's Chesapeake Bay is a lot calmer than the Irish Sea. <laughs> Let's just put it out there. Absolutely. I used to live on the coast of the Irish Sea, and it's rough. Mm-hmm. It's r- and where he's building it is the deepest bit. Oh, <laughs> like, <yeah>. Brilliant. <laughs> What's going on? I don't know. I'm just. I don't know. I'm, I'm just reading good books, recording good podcasts, and just the- keeping out of it, keeping my head down. <laughs> It's above your pay grade, Mr. Jimmerman. All the cream of the intellectuals (laughs) floats to the top, don't you know? (laughs) Well, I can look forward to replacing government, really. (laughs) Oh, Oh, no, that sinks to the bottom to be in the cabinet. (laughs) Never seen something, no hopers. It's fail upwards. Oh, it is. Talk about the Peter Principle being a... Promoted to you know one rank above your level of competence. They've, they've redefined that now. Bloody hell! Oh my. Okay, so I'm going to get the Wikipedia entry out for this, and maybe an e-text. Uh, silver key. I can't trust Wikipedia anymore. It's really sad. Unfortunately, that well, that rule really only applies to things that matter. It doesn't apply to things that don't matter, like stories from a thousand years ago or anything like that they're fine <laughs> but if it's uh, on some current issue or uh there's some think tank busily you know locking it down and changing it up but uh, mm. i think this this wikipedia entry is probably okay i mean it's not going to be complete or perfect but it's not going to be heavily biased in favor of some whack job <laughs> uh, theory. Yes, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. all right so there's that and then the hp Lovecraft e-text. There we go. Should be good. Who runs that? Well, uh, HPLovecraft.com. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. It's been going a long time, and uh, it's a good site. It's very, it's very useful. I mean, getting the chronology, being able to place when mm. stories were written and published and get the same dates is very useful i found it very handy over the years of uh and just be able to link to the text as well and some 
a good bit of obscure stuff you can't find anywhere else as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. It's like the essays and whatnot. And it's kind of, yeah, a, it's oh, a lot of the poems are there too, which is mm, good. that's yeah. fantastic. It is. <laughs> very handy. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, did we get Marissa back yet? No, not yet. Okay, I'm going to see if she's uh, online. Oh no, it says she's there. Oh no, it doesn't. It, she should be able to hit join when she comes back. Uh, but I will try and add her in again, just in case. And I'll try and add. Evan says green. What's it, what's green with a white dot in the middle mean? Um, I don't Ooh, know. I have ever seen that. I don't. I don't have the code. Damn it! Why would they do that? I know. I oh, I think green with a white dot means they're online, but they're not in your call. Maybe. Okay, I'll try and. Maybe. Try and add both. Because you are green without a dot. Yeah, no, green. Green just means they're ready to go, right? Yellow means like they're. I think it means they're away from their computer, or like their yeah. computer's not active, or something like that. It's. Yeah, you'd think like they just you pick a standard and you stick with it. <laughs> now uh, like, there's a little heart <laughs> emoji, and then you run your mouse over that and you can give a thumbs up, or or emo- some sort of emojis. It's like I'm I'm on a oh, it says Maris is unavailable. Calling Evan. Okay, so we'll just wait wait a minute. Um, hmm. Unavailable might be. If she's restarted, no doubt Skype will try and update itself because that's yes. what it normally does. Yes, that's mm. true. Uh, I got the last days of Thronus going out um, tonight, Paul. That's um, uh, oh show yes, with you and me only. Um, oh, that's right. <laughs> and uh, it's a good, it's a good one. It's a good one. Oh um, no, no, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed the enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm surprised. It's a little odd um, when we're just doing when it's just a one-on-one. Some random uh, uh, old science fiction story turns out, uh, Mr. Jimin. It turns out that it's like uh, it was the major. It was a major inspiration for Star right Trek. Back. Oh, there she is. Ah. yeah. Um, Sorry, Skype took half an hour to turn back on. <laughs> oh yeah, no doubt. Um, so this uh, the story called Last Days of Thronus is uh, was a major inspiration for Star Trek in that ah. in that. Uh, the main character um, has a conversation with a computer and basically tries to convince it in the Kirk style. Um, you know, you need to do what I tell you because I'm lo- out logicking you. Um, and then uh, Paul found a quote um, where Gene Roddenberry said, I'd stand in line for the rain in the rain uh, for a uh, uh, S.J. Byrne story. Yep. That's like, wow. So there's a connection. Uh huh. And that's a that's a that's cool. Where you see, so I watched an episode uh, last night of Star Trek, the one uh, that was supposedly so sort of Lovecraft. I, I I did the other night too. I watched Erin DeMercy for the fun of it. Which one is that? That's a the one with the Organians. Some... No, I don't remember. That's but... a, the it, it, it's the Klingon Federation war planet of uh, apparently simple medieval people, and turns out they're actually powerful All space right. aliens, lots of powers, and they kind of want both sides like stop fighting you idiots and yeah. they have to listen because they're pretty potent that's when the americans and the soviets invade the dreamlands right <laughs> <laughs> and carter says no that's right 
Or Nyarlathotep, if you were to really go. No, Nyarlathotep doesn't show up in the Dreamlands. He's I don't I don't think. Well, I, think I, I thought I thought he had something going on up in the Plane of Lang. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, you may be right. Yeah, but he's he's not walking the streets of Ulthar. True. Um, but he does show up in uh, uh, the United States. <laughs> um, uh, but anyways, the 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 cool part about that episode um, is called uh, "Is There in Truth No Beauty." Um, has uh, first of all, there's this alien ambassador who, if you look oh, at him, you that, go insane. Yes, I remember that one. Yes, the Medusa. Right, Medusa. and then yeah. Diana Muldoor, the actress who later was on Next Generation, as, as, the, as the bad doctor. Uh, I don't like whatever. that season. I don't like that doctor. Whatever, she was fine. Um, but the important part is, uh, it, this story is like jam packed with ideas, and also it's super weird. Like the editing style, super weird. So like, uh, we get the fisheye lens. So uh, when you're seeing from Crazy Man's point of view, and uh, and then like she's randomly blind. Um, but that's sort of involved with the story. And it turns out that the, uh, uh, the person who wrote it was a fan of the show who just submitted it. Um, as like, I like this show here. Uh, check this it out. Was a th- it was a third season episode after all. Yeah. Um, she actually <laughs> wrote two episodes and she was a librarian. Um, so it's, it's like full of, uh, literary references and it's got that sort of Lovecraft element. And well, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of Star Trek that does the, the, the literary thing, like Conscience of the King, for example, is sure. straight off. Let's let's bar- let's borrow Hamlet. Sure, but uh, the fact that it was not written by you know a, a team member and it wasn't like a standard uh, uh, you know science fiction writer, she she and her script got produced is pretty amazing. Just some random librarian lady. <laughs> <laughs> kind of interesting. Anyways, uh, let's do a show, shall we? Let me get recorder started and ready for action. Mm, good idea. Let's see what we got here. Do I have one? Oh, yeah, I have one. All right. Mercy, you all good? I'm all good. And your uh, audio's better now? Yeah, you guys haven't cut out again, so... Excellent. Hopefully that cleared the... Whatever it had to cough up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how's life in Los Angeles? Uh, it feels pretty um feels pretty dirty after New Zealand. <laughs> oh right, yeah. Oh. That's why we haven't seen you so long. Yes, had a nice month in like a clean, fresh, nature filled country, and now I'm back to the human feces on the street oh. and the pollution and the all the good stuff of LA. <laughs> oh my. It's a, it's a bit harsh. <laughs> there is no place like New Zealand, Marissa. I've learned that to my own mm-hmm. credit. There is no place. Yeah. At- I, I am planning to go to Worldcon this year, so I think that's Oz, Paul, not, not New Zealand. <laughs> no, there's no place like New Zealand either. Or Kansas. There's no place maybe, like Australia either. That's a different thing. That's a different problem. There's no place like a lot of places, I guess. <laughs> that's probably true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Mr. Jim Moon, did you see uh Morgan Scorpion? Uh what's her name? I don't know her real name. I can't remember. Oh, Julia. 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 Julia Morgan. Yeah. She has a fox in her house. <clears throat> yes, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was whack. She had what, sorry? A fox in her house. Oh, cool. Apparently it got in somehow and it's got mange. 
Oh, that's not so cool. <laughs> We've been in a few times, and you know, she's, I saw like earlier last week, so I've had a smelly cat in my flat. Because, oh, you know, my. if you have cats, you, they often bring their buddies in, and sometimes you get interlopers. <laughs> and then she, she had the smelly cat was under my bed and looked, and it was a fox. Oh, my oh. God. I had to get the RSPCA to check it out. And yeah. uh, um, she got mange, so that's all right, and they got it back out again. But apparently, you can treat mange because there's like, stuff you can put into uh, food and leave out for them, which wow. will clear it up for them. That's good. So that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you guys don't have coyotes, right? No, no, we just have urban foxes. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're filling the same niche. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Marissa and mm-hmm. me and Paul, you, I'm sure you have them too. What, coyotes? Yeah. Yeah, they, they occasionally come into the Twin Cities. Yeah, they're 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 sort of really they, well they, 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 they adapt very well to human society. So yeah, you got to give everybody credit. You have to give them a ride over to the UK to. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you well, know, we were introducing the wolf in parts of Britain. Which wow, is, that's how long will we get urban wolves? I don't know. Probably not long at all. No, <laughs> and I Bringing don't think it'll go. And wild ball. Yeah, it won't go well the first time they take a kid. Nope. <laughs> nope. They're not going to like that. <laughs> There's a reason why they were hunted down to extinction in it's the first true. place. It's true. It's true. And it's yeah. not just mm. the sheep. Um, because, nope. <laughs> you know, you know, it's all nice to be friends with, uh, with, uh, you know, a cat because it can't physically rip your throat out very easily. <laughs> it can hurt the fuck out of you, but you, your just weight is big enough to, to stop it. Anyways, let's go to a nicer place, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> Let's go to the dream Yes, lines. indeed. All right. Here we go.